them never knew in life. Men have long pondered some serious questions about life. Men have wondered such things as where did I come from and why am I here and where am I going? And in his search to answer those questions, he has tried to find the answers in various places. Only in the one place in which those answers to be found can we, of course, find them to our satisfaction and also in regards to truth. Only God in His Word tells us where we came from. Only God in His Word ultimately tells us why, we, why we're here. And also, only that Word tells us where we're going. If we examine those matters separate and apart from the Word of God, we arrive at the foolishness of man. We arrive at the answer to where did I come from with such silly notions as evolution. We arrive at such foolish ideas as why we're here as building empires and conquering nations. And we arrive at such silliness when we look at the idea of where am I going, ideas of reincarnation and other such ideologies. Men have also pondered life after death. Many have wondered, what is beyond the realm of this life? What is beyond the grave? Some have come up with the idea that there's nothing there, that when this, this life is over, it's simply over, that we cease to exist, that there is a vast expanse of nothingness there, and so, that being the case, we should live life to its fullest. Do whatever you want to do, because there is nothing beyond this life. Roll of the dice for us. Others have come up with the idea that we get to start over again in reincarnation. It's interesting when we examine the scriptures and there are some individuals there who were brought back from the dead by the miraculous power of God through his various followers. It's interesting that we never find one of them who had come back from the dead that said anything about that. Yet today when individuals claim that they have, gone, they have died and gone beyond the grave and then come back, they're always willing to talk about it. Very seldom do you find one of them who says, well, I saw a big fiery pit and it just scared me to death. Most of them, they see a bright light and hear beautiful music and see beautiful individuals. But when we look at the Bible, James 2 and verse 26 tells us that the body without the spirit is dead. While an individual may be what we call clinically dead, that is, he has no heart rhythm that can be detected, maybe no brain waves that are detectable by man either, but then that individual is brought back, we say. That individual didn't really die. If that individual has died, the body and the spirit are separated. And once that occurs, it takes a miracle of God for those two to be brought back together. God is not performing miracles today, of course. 1 Corinthians 13, other passages reveal that unto us. And so today a person might suffer what is called clinical death, but he's not actually dead. But numbers of individuals have claimed that they died and have claimed that they've seen some things beyond the grave. And that intrigues us. That interests us. Because as I said, the millions that died last year, the hundreds of thousands that died last month, the 108 that died in just the last minute, death is very familiar to us and yet it's very unfamiliar to us. None of us has ever experienced that. Death is something about which we know a great deal because we see it so often. And yet we know so very little because it's still a mystery to us. And so often when we come to scriptures, there are things that we have more questions about than we have answers. 
God has provided every answer that we need, 2 Peter 1.3. According to his divine power, hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Though we might not have answered to our satisfaction some of our questions, all that we need to know, God has provided for us. But one of those, perhaps, is this idea of death. If only we could part time's veil and look beyond that just a little bit. The Bible doesn't do that for us a great deal, but it does on some occasions allow us a glimpse into eternity's side. It does on occasion part the veil of time and allow us to see beyond the realm of the grave. And one of those occasions is found in Luke chapter 16. There in beginning in verse 19, the Bible says there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which laid his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It came to pass that the beggar died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said unto him, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thou good things, likewise Lazarus the evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside this, between us and thee, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence, from thence to, hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send unto my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, the dead then would they repent. And he said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. From this we can see from the vantage point of dead men. From this we understand that dead men do know some things. And if they could return to the earth, dead men could tell tales. But they can't do that. And so we're allowed to see in this instance knowledge that dead men have that likely most live men do not understand. And so from this, this particular text tonight, let's look at the subject of if live men knew what dead men know. First, if live men knew what dead men know, they would know that the day of mercy is coming to an end. Luke 16 and verse 24, this man's cry from beyond the grave. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Here he had a cup of, uh, he had a, a, a cup of misery, but not a single drop of mercy. It's interesting that this man said, let Lazarus come and bring me just a drop of water. Let him dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. He was a man whom the Bible said was rich in life. He could have afforded many of life's luxuries, perhaps most in his day. He could have afforded barrels of water. He could have afforded wells and springs, perhaps. But here was a man in the other side of time who didn't ask for a bucket of water. He didn't ask for a glass of water. He didn't ask for even a swallow of water. He asked for the amount of water that could be obtained from simply dipping one's finger in water and letting it fall. One drop, cup of misery, but not a single drop of mercy. His plea, though not unheard, was unfulfilled. In Matthew 7 and verse 21, Jesus said, Words familiar to us, 
Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, thy name cast out devils, thy name done many wonderful works, and I will profess unto them I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You see, many on this side of eternity think they are doing God's will. And they think that not because they've examined God's word closely enough, but because they've listened to what men tell them. Or they listen to what those who are their colleagues tell them. They listen to what televangelists tell them. Instead of listening to what God's word tells them. And they, in all sincerity, according to this brief judgment scene that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7, will say to him in all honesty and sincerity, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not done many things in thy name, cast out devils and other things? And notice he said to them, I never knew you. It's interesting in light of the fact that in a few moments we'll look at an instance, a judgment scene, in which Jesus said to those who object in this fashion, I know you not. Thus, when we read that, two kinds of lost people, those to whom the Lord will say, I never knew you, and those to whom he says, I know you not. A difference in those two. The saying that I know you not is an implication that I once knew you, but I no longer do. The others that I never knew you, they had never named his name, never done that which he had called upon them to do. These same individuals mentioned in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 will likewise receive the cup of, mer- of misery without a drop of mercy. See, if live men knew what dead men know, we'd know that the day of mercy is coming to an end. Matthew 25 and verse 31, the Bible tells us there, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall, be gathered, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. And he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous say unto him, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and gave thee meat? When saw we thee a thirst and gave thee drink? When saw thee a, we thee a stranger and took thee in? When saw we thee sick or in prison and minister unto thee? And he will say unto them, And as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Then shall the king say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed and everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. I was sick, and you visited me not. I was in prison, and you came not unto me. Then shall they say unto him, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, or thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, and in prison, and did not minister unto thee? He will say unto them, As much as you did it not to the least of these, my brethren, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. From what all that we understand in Scripture, these two judgment scenes and others, there will be no second chance. There will be no opportunity to make amends for those things that were not done when time and opportunity were ours. No such things as reincarnation. No such thing as a second chance to do that. As the song that so often has been sung says, Too late, too late will be your cry when mercy's day has passed you by. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
As we mentioned last night, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3 reveals to us that he is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. But the God of mercies and the Father of all comfort will be absent for those on the day of judgment who fail to be obedient to his will. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, the Bible says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Mercy of God is readily available and is a free-flowing fountain to those who will but be obedient to his will. But far too many individuals will not avail themselves of that cup of mercy, and to them then will be given nothing but a cup of misery. When we're on this side of eternity, we can avail ourselves of mercy, but on that side there will be none. Jude verse 21, Jude said, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of Jesus Christ into eternal life. Mercy is here and available to each of us. But one thing that dead men know, that live men, so many of them do not, is that the day of mercy is coming to an end. Perhaps sometimes we live our lives in the idea that, unlike so many others, I'll get a second chance. That the Lord will hear my objections from these judgment scenes that Jesus has depicted in Matthew 7 and Matthew chapter 25. We know that there will be those on the day of judgment who will object and who will be allowed, obviously, to make those objections. Lord, when did we see you in these circumstances? Did we not prophesy in your name? Your name cast out devils. Your name do so many wonderful works. Their objections, though, from what we can determine in these passages, though heard, will not be heeded. And there will be those who will raise those objections, so many of them likely in sincerity, as some of these, as Jesus showed, will, in all sincerity, believe that they did everything the Lord wanted them to do. But for them that day, a cup of misery, not a drop of mercy. Blood men knew what dead men know. They would know that the day of mercy is coming to an end. But second, if live men knew what dead men know, they would know that the day of torment is at hand. Following that in Luke 16, 24, he said, For I'm tormented in this flame. Later on in verse 25, the latter part of that, he said of Lazarus, But he is comforted, and I'm tormented. He realized all too late that the day of torment was upon him. Just because one thinks himself to be saved, that's certainly not the case. There are many today whom you would, if you would ask about those matters, would say, oh sure, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I'm saved and I know it. And if you ask them why, they say, well, I feel it here. Can't give you a biblical reason for that, but they just feel that they are. And sadly, far too many will face the judgment throne of our Lord with nothing more than a feeling Nothing more to deliver to him than to say, well, I felt like I was saved. Lord, I'm not saved. They'll raise those objections. Just because others say one is saved does not mean that he is. One can be pronounced saved by a denominational preacher or by some organization, and yet the Bible clearly reveals that that individual has failed to meet those qualifications for salvations. You see, those Muslims in that 2015 year November day thought in doing what they did that they would obtain paradise and the allotted 72 virgins that were theirs through Islam but like those innocent victims they too had their eyes opened 
They came to an awareness after life was over that they never had while they had life within them. Few consider themselves to be lost, in fact. Polls have been done, surveys have been made, people have been asked the question, do you think when you die you're going to go to heaven? Most of them will say yes. Have you ever read an obituary or been to a funeral where in that obituary or in those statements that were made in the funeral was said about the person who had died, oh, he's lost, he was a rascal and a scoundrel, you know, he was a, a drank a lot and he ran around on his, on his wife and she had deserted her children and they're just a... I've never seen that. I have seen one obituary that was written by the young man who wrote it for himself just before he took his own life. And in that obituary, which he said was to be put in the paper, he said, I did everything I could to go against society. And on down the line he went and he said, I know that I'll be lost. Seldom do you see that. You can go to the funeral of the, what the community would know would be the, probably the worst person in town. Nothing good will be said about them. So you see, just because someone says another individual is saved doesn't mean that he is. Just because one considers himself to be in a saved condition doesn't mean that he is either. Most consider themselves to be of the few. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Any at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, many there be which go in thereat. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. Few will go through the straight and narrow gate. Let me take just a detour momentarily here for those of us who are members of the church, and that includes most of us tonight. Too often we make ourselves miserable by trying to make the straight and narrow the thin and the impossible. We drive ourselves crazy, if you will, by trying to make the straight and narrow way that Jesus described it much more straight and much more narrow than the Lord ever intended. We make ourselves miserable because we think we have to live a life of perfection. And when we can't do that and we can't be perfect in living the Christian life, so many times we just give up. I often say that every situation in life will either make you better, make you bitter, or make you say, why bother? Far too often, instead of making us, making us better, we simply throw our hands up and say, why bother? Why bother with it at all? Because we've already had the mindset and already set ourselves to this standard of loss. And that is that I've got to be perfect. I've got to walk a razor's thin edge of perfection or I'll never make it to heaven. And then when we don't do that, we become so discouraged that we simply give up on the grace and mercy of God. Now, the grace of God is not an umbrella. It's not going to cover everything that you do. You can't have the mindset of abandonment of God's Word and rejection of His truth, that you're going to live any life that you want to live, and God's grace in the end is going to cover you. But we need to understand as God's people that His grace is for us above all others. And we need to live our lives with the understanding that God is for us and not against us, that He loves us and He wants us to be saved. And stop living our lives on the thin and the impossible, and start walking the straight and narrow. Well, back to our thoughts again. In Luke 6 and verse 46, Jesus said, Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Many individuals will say unto him, Lord, Lord, as we've seen from Matthew 7, but then not do what he tells them to do. The Lord requires that of us. Unless we do so, the day of torment will be there for each of us as well. 
Second Thessalonians 1 and verse 6, Paul said, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Do you who are troubled rest with us, a noun there, when, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. They have torment is at hand. None of us is going to live forever, of course. Each of us will suffer death, barring the Lord's return. And very few of us will live past the century mark. The older one gets, and those of us who are older know that, the faster life seems to go. We have more days behind us than we have in front of us. And each day brings us closer to eternity. What faces us after that? Will it be a day of torment? Or will it be a day of rest and eternal enjoyment? To the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2 and verse 10, Jesus said, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, you may be tried. You shall have tribulation ten death, but be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Back to that thought for a moment about walking the straight and narrow. The Lord here tells them to be faithful unto death. Those of us who are married, most of us are faithful to our spouse. I'm a faithful husband. Now, I'm not a perfect husband, but I'm a faithful husband. I've made mistakes through the years, and if I live another day, I'll make more mistakes, but I'll remain faithful. We can be faithful to the Lord and still have imperfections in our lives. God's grace is there for us in that regard. James said in James 4, 13 and 14, Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. James says in that text, you ought to say, if the Lord will, we will live and do this or that. But James tells us in that passage that life is a vapor. It will be gone before we know it. The Bible describes life as a vapor, as a flower, as grass. It's just a wisp, and it's gone. And if live men knew what dead men know, they would make the proper preparations. Because they'd know that the day of torment is at hand. But third... If live men knew what dead men know, they would know that an eternity of regret is not worth a lifetime of pleasure. Some of the most haunting, sad words in the Bible are found in Luke 16. There in verse 25, the Bible says, For Abraham said, Son, remember. Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thou good things, likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. The obvious implication from this passage is not only does this rich man now have the ability to remember things from life, but that will be true of each of us. That we'll be able to remember things from life. Here was a man who had opportunity. Son, remember that in your lifetime you had many things. Lazarus had few. But now there was a reversal of fortunes. Lazarus was the wealthy one and he was the pauper. He was the one who had nothing, though in life he likely had about everything. Now Lazarus was the rich man. And this man knew suddenly that an eternity of regret and remorse was not worth a lifetime of pleasure. If this is true, and certainly we believe it is from Scripture, that this man can remember, he this very night as we view time likely remembers still. 2,000 years almost removed 
from the time in which this occurred, still remembering those lost opportunities. And if that's the case, if you are lost on the day of judgment, what will you remember? Some will remember opportunities like this, maybe this very night, not because of who stands before you, but because of the word that was proclaimed. You'll remember a night in which you stood to sing the invitation song. You grabbed the back of the pew or your book with such tenacity you had white knuckles. But you talked yourself out of obeying the Lord, of making your life right because you knew it was wrong. You'll remember that through all eternity. Or perhaps you tonight will say no to the Lord's invitation to come unto Him and Tonight you'll make it easier to do tomorrow night. You'll make it easier to do next Sunday and easier to do next year and eventually you'll talk yourself out of it altogether. If that's the case and you never obey the gospel of Christ, you'll have an eternity to remember that and you'll be able to. Saddest words in Scripture, some of the saddest. Son, remember. As these two millennium plus have passed, Echoes of those words are still hauntingly there in the ears of this rich man. Son, remember. What will you remember if you die lost? Hebrews 11 and verse 24. The Bible says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, than notice to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The Bible says, For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward, esteeming the reproaches of Egypt, far, or reproaches of Christ, far greater treasures than the riches of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Here was a man who understood that sin has its pleasure. We all understand that. That's the appeal of it. But a, a lifetime of pleasure will in no way make up for an eternity of regret. Moses saw that beforehand. And because of that, tonight, just as the rich man remembers lost opportunities, Moses remembers those he took advantage of. Moses, from all we understand about him, is on the same side as Lazarus. And tonight, with memory that he has, he remembers turning down the reproaches of Egypt, turning down the pleasures of all those riches, and taking up the reproaches of Christ. Matthew 16 and verse 26, Jesus said, For what is a man profit? If he shall gain the whole world, lose his own soul. We've been reminded many times in our lifetimes that we are the richest nation on earth, perhaps the richest nation that has ever lived. But we could take a tour tonight and go out to the West Coast and there get all the abundance of the San Joaquin Valley and all of the gold that's found in those places. Come further to the riches that are wasted on a daily basis in cities like Las Vegas. And we could gather as well in the great Midwest and those fertile fields that are there, all of the vast farms and the implements and all the equipment that is there and those rich farmlands. Come further to the East Coast and Wall Street and the Eastern Seaboard and the riches that are to be found in the retirement communities of Florida. We could gather all of those riches up and put them in one pile, put one soul in opposition to them. The illustration there would be just what our Lord said. One soul is worth more than all the world. And tonight, that rich man understands this truth, perhaps more so than many others. Certainly he understands it as a dead man more than most live men do. What is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 9, Rejoice, O young men, in thy youth, 
Let thine heart cheer thee all the days of thy youth. Walk in the ways of thine heart and the sight of thine eyes. Now, what was Solomon saying there? Was he encouraging that? No, he was speaking sarcastically. Walk, young man, in the way of your heart. You just follow your heart's desire. You do everything that you want to do. But then he concludes with this. But know thou this, that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. You see, God's going to bring into judgment those matters, whether they're good or evil. And Solomon concludes that portion of his thoughts with this thought. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. When the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. You see, those things that glitter are not always gold. And those things that catch our fancy when we're younger, so many times when we get older, they don't do that anymore. But so many times we waste our youth in chasing that which glitters, thinking it's gold. And we fail to obtain the true riches in life. Solomon's words of encouragement are not those which say, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thine heart cheer thee all the days of thy youth. Walk in the ways of thine heart and the sight of thine eyes. No, his words of encouragement are these, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 32, Paul said, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which do such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Think about the statement that Paul made there. Not only are those condemned who engage in those activities, many of which are listed there in Romans 1, encompassing the Gentile world, culminating in the practice of homosexuality, but he said, who have pleasure in them that do them. He said, I don't have to actually engage in that in order to be guilty of it. I can simply have pleasure in those that do them. Think about that from the standpoint of the movies that Hollywood makes that glamorizes such things as homosexuality. And if I have pleasure in, if I lend my credence to those, according to this passage, I'm just as guilty. Luke 16 and verse 24, the first part of that, his eternal situation now, the Bible says he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, for I am tormented in this flame. You see, this man now knows that an eternity of regret was not worth a lifetime of pleasure. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 6, Paul said of this particular kind of woman, she being dead, or she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. If live men knew what dead men know, they would know that an eternity of regret is not worth a lifetime of pleasure. But again, if live men knew what dead men know, they would know that you only have one chance to get it right. Luke 16, 26, Beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they come to us that would pass to us that would come from thence. This passage forever dispels the idea of a purgatory as taught by the Catholic Church. Catholic Church maintains that after this life is over, then one will be purged and eventually allowed to escape purgatory, and then if enough is done for him and by him, he will eventually be able to pass into eternity of pleasure. But this passage teaches us that's not true. Buddhists, among others, teach reincarnation. That when one dies, he will come back as another form of life until he eventually reaches a utopia standpoint. This passage teaches that's simply not true. You see, Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says, As is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. And if live men knew what dead men know, they would know that we only have one chance to get it right. 
And we'd also know that those, that chance is limited by every individual. I may live to be a hundred, but I may not live to see tomorrow. That chance is still mine tonight. But we never know when we might be taken from life by some tragedy or some disease. We never know when our Lord might return and the time and opportunity will be ours no more. But again, if live men knew what dead men know, they would know, or they would be more concerned about others and less about themselves. Luke 16, 27 and 28, this rich man, once he understood that Lazarus could be of no assistance to him personally, he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, speaking to Abraham, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Amazing, isn't it, how suddenly this man became a personal evangelist of the first class. I've often wondered what this rich man would do if he was allowed to come back to earth for just one day. No doubt one of the first things he'd do would get a drink of water because he wanted a drop of that from Lazarus. But among the first things he would do would run immediately to his father's house and tell his five brothers about that place of torment. He wasn't allowed that privilege, nor will anyone else be. Nor were his five brothers allowed that. And we can't help but wonder about those five brothers. Did they ever listen to Moses and the prophets? Did they ever, even one of them, come to an understanding of that, an appreciation of that, an obedience to it? And unlike their brother now in eternity... Avoid that place of torment. This man suddenly became a personal evangelist. Paul said in Philippians 2 and verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but let each of you esteem others higher, each of you esteem others more highly than themselves. Paul said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Our Lord esteemed others better than himself. He didn't esteem himself too good to take upon himself human form, too good to be stricken by mere men, too good to suffer death upon a cross, not for anything that he had done, not for any debt that he owed, but for everything that you had done, everything I have done. And everything that we owe. He had the mindset that he should have had. Genesis 4 and verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? It might be the case that Abel was not his brother's keeper, but he was his brother's brother. And we have to keep that in mind as well and esteem others better than ourselves. John said, If a man say he loved God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not, loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? First John 4 and verse 20. You see, if we had the mindset of dead men, we'd certainly think more about taking the gospel to others, wouldn't we? Matthew 28, 19, Mark 16, 15. The great commission about which we spoke on Sunday. If live men knew what dead men know, they would be more concerned about others, less about ourselves. But finally tonight, if live men knew what dead men know, they would know that God's say-so is all that ultimately matters. This passage tells us in verse 29 and following, Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said unto him, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, then would they repent. You see, here was a man he thought, who thought he knew more than God's spokesman Abraham. Here was one who had just arrived in eternity, who thought he knew more than one who had been there a long time. 
Here was one uninspired who never cared about God's word, who thought he knew more than one who had been inspired and who had died knowing God's word. Father Abraham, if you'll, if you'll let somebody go back from the dead, they'll listen to him. But notice the credence that Abraham and the Lord through Abraham then gives to the Word of God. In this instance, of course, since they were living under Mosaic age, it would have been to the Old Testament. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The Lord is putting the Scripture up against what one could see of one coming from the dead. And thus, in an illustrative way, the Lord said the Scriptures are more impactful, they are more testamentary, they are more convincing than if one dropped smoking and flaming in the very pits of hell before us and told us not to go there. He said if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't hear Lazarus if he did go back, nor you if you went back. Think about the impact of that. In our day and time, of course, the Lord would use the New Testament. If they hear not Paul and Peter, neither would they be convinced though one rose from the dead and told them what he had found. The impact of that word. You see, we would know as live men what dead men already know, that God's say-so is all that ultimately matters. To return to Solomon again in Ecclesiastes 12, he said, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now the word duty has been supplied by the King James writers. The passage literally says this is the whole of man. This passage, among others, tells us why we we are here. Those questions we mentioned at the outset. Where did I come from? Why am I here and where am I going? Why am I here is answered for us in Scripture. We're here as our whole to fear God and keep His commandments. Here is an example in this rich man of one who never did that. And we see the fate he suffered. There was one in Lazarus who obviously did. And we see the bliss that he enjoys. We would also understand that man's think so is not equivalent to God's say so. I try in my preaching and teaching to say as little as possible about I think. Try to say the Bible says... Because that's the authority. That's what we should go to. But you listen to denominational preachers. You listen to televangelists. And you hear so often, I think or I feel or I believe. But man's think so is not equivalent to God's say so. It doesn't really matter what I think about that, how I feel about that, or my belief about it. What matters is what God's word says about it. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John fourteen fifteen. In no other way did our Lord ever express to us that we could express our love for Him than by keeping His commandments. He said in John 15, 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, you're my friends if you do whatsoever I tell you. We show our friendship to and our love for the Lord by keeping His commandments. To the contrary, He said in Luke 6, 46, Why well, call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Remember that passage we mentioned earlier in Matthew 7? Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? To their ears no doubt echo this very night, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, the apostle said, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. The Lord is the author of eternal salvation, but ultimately and eternally. 
Only truly the author of eternal salvation, as far as the consequences are concerned, to those who obey. To those who fail to obey, to those who are lost eternally, they will not have taken advantage of the author of their salvation. And his death to them would have been in vain. If live men knew tonight what dead men know, then live men would know that the day of mercy is coming to an end. Live men would know that the day of torment is at hand. Live men would know that an eternity of regret is not worth a lifetime of pleasure. Live men would know that we only have one chance to get it right. Live men would be more concerned about others and less about self. Live men would know that God's say-so is all that ultimately matters. There was an occasion, much like no doubt you have recently observed or shall very soon, in which there was a graduation ceremony for the seniors in the congregation. And there was one young man whose name was John who was graduating. Fine young man, but he had never obeyed the gospel of Christ. And on that occasion of his graduation, they had a dinner for them. They recognized the graduates. Each of them had a display of things they had accomplished in high school. And after things were over, John kind of drifted over to his display, and one of the elders of the congregation who knew John and had known him since he was born went over to him and he said, John, congratulations. You've done a fine job in high school. You've been an exemplary model of a student. What's your plans? What are you going to do now that you're graduating high school? He said, well, I think I'm going to college. I'd like to go to college and and I'd be a teacher. So I'm going to go to State University and get my four-year degree. He said, well, that's great. He said, I, I got my college education early and said, it's, it's rewarded me well through life. But what then? John said, well, you know, I kind of sheepishly said, I'd, I'd like to find a girl there and I'd like, to, I'd like to get married. I'd like to have a home one day and have a wife to come home to and he said, well, that's great, John. He said, I've been married for 40 years myself. He said, I, I recommend it highly. Nothing greater than a good marriage. But what then? John said, well, you know, I'd kind of like to have some children. I'd like to have a boy and maybe a girl. And he said, well, John, I've got three of my own. Grandchildren, too. He said, nothing like them. He said, that's, that's a good thought. But what then? John said, well, you know, I'd like to teach for a while and maybe even become a principal. And said, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to serve the community in that way. And he said, well, that's just as commendable as it can be. I, I think that's a great idea. But what then? And he said, well, I, I guess I hadn't thought much about it, but once, once my teaching career is over with, I, I guess I'll just, I guess I'll retire. He said, you know, I've been retired for three or four years, and I tell you, I really like it. But what then? John thought a minute, and he said, well, I I, I guess like everyone else, I'll eventually die. And he said, what then? When all the great plants of our cities have turned out their last finished work, when the merchant has made his last bargain and dismissed the last hired clerk, when the banker has made his last dollar and paid out the last dividend, when the judge of the earth says, close for the night, and ask for a balance, what then? When the bugle's last call sinks in silence and the long marching columns stand still, when the captain has given his last order and they've taken the last fort and hill, when the flag has been hauled from its masthead and the wounded afield have checked in, and the trumpet of ages has sounded and we stand up before him, what then?
When the actor has made his last drama and the mimic has made his last fun. When the movie has flashed its last picture and the billboard displayed its last run. When the crowd-seeking pleasure has vanished and gone into darkness again. And a world that rejected its Savior is asked for a reason. What then? When the church has sung its last anthem and the preacher said his last prayer. When the people have heard their last sermon and the sound has died out in the air. When the Bible lies closed in the pulpit. The pews are all empty of men. And each one stands to face his record. And the great book is opened. What then? Tonight our advice to you would be this. Don't wait until you're a dead man to know what dead men know. Dead men are not ignorant. They're some of the wisest people there are. They're still alive tonight. Not fleshly. They're alive in another realm. They're well aware of some things that most of them weren't aware of in life. Tonight you have a golden opportunity to obey the gospel of Christ. And as we talked about this rich man that now he remembers and that he has memory and will have for all eternity, what will you remember if you die lost? Will you remember this very night this very night when each of you has listened so intently, and I'm grateful for that, that some guy from some foreign country out of state somewhere preached about the rich man and Lazarus. And I remember thinking, you know, I need to obey the gospel. But I didn't. And for all eternity, that may be all you remember. Or it may be tonight that you thought, well, you know, I, I didn't care for that guy too much, but he did say something that struck home. And that night in my heart I knew I wasn't right with God. I knew I was a child of God. I'd obeyed the gospel, but I've just turned away and become disinterested. Become calloused and cold. And I, I knew that night I needed to make things right. But I just didn't do it. And for all eternity, that may be all you remember. Tonight, learn the lessons of dead men before death faces you. If you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, you're willing to repent of your sins, to confess the name of Christ before this good audience and be baptized tonight. Or if you're a member of the body of Christ but have turned away, left your first love, why not return to Him tonight? Time and opportunity are ours. They're not guaranteed for the next minute. But for this moment, they're yours. Take advantage of them and know even what dead men know while you're still alive. Won't you come while we stand and sing together? There's a fountain free, tis for you and me. Let us haste, oh haste, to its bring. Tis the fount of love from the source above, and He bids us all freely drink. Will you come to the fountain free? Will you come? Tis for you and me, thirsty soul. Hear the welcome call. Tis a fountain open for all. 
There's a rock that's cleft, and no soul is left that may not its pure water share. Tis for you and me, and its stream I see. Let us hasten joyfully there. Will you come to the fountain free? Will you come? Tis for you and me, thirsty soul. Hear the welcome call. Tis a fountain open for all. Only one more night left in our gospel meeting. We hope that you'll be here with us. We know that several of you may have to go to your own home congregation, but we tell you one thing, we'll make a deal with you. If you'll come be with us, we'll write you an excuse that you can take back to your home congregation. Uh, you can take back a bulletin, we'll sign that thing or something if you just want to come and be with us. But we do appreciate you being here with us tonight. And we look forward to seeing everyone who can back with us tomorrow night. And as I said last night, if everyone here will bring one person with you, we'll have twice as many here tomorrow night as we had tonight. Thank you, Brother Eddie, for the lesson tonight. Appreciate it so, so very much. Are there other announcements that we need to make? If not, we'll sing one uh, uh, more song, and then following that, Brother Ryan Hall will lead us in our closing prayer. Four hundred eighty. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity that you've given us to come together tonight and study your word. Lord, we thank you for...